Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today we're talking to Michelle Daniel-Jones and Elizabeth Angeline Nelson, who, along with the Indiana Women's History Project, are editors and authors of the new book, Who Would Believe a Prisoner? Indiana Women's Carceral Institutions, 1848 through 1920, which was published in 2023 by the New Press. Their biographies are quite lengthy and impressive, so um, please forgive me as I read a much abbreviated version of them. Michelle Daniel-Jones is a six-year doctoral student in the American Studies program at New York University. Her dissertation focuses on creative liberation strategies of incarcerated women and the Alabama Prison Arts and Education Project. As an organizer, collaborator, and subject matter expert, she creates opportunities to speak truth to power and serves in the development and operation of task forces and initiatives to reduce harm and end mass incarceration. She has joined Second Chance Educational Alliance as a senior research consultant, the Survivors Justice Project, and serves on the boards of Worth Rises and the Correctional Association of New York and advisory boards of the Jemai Sisterhood, the Education Trust, A Touch of Light, the Urban Institute, and Ithaca's Higher Education in Prison Research Project. She is also a founding member and board member of Constructing Our Future, a re-entry and housing organization for women created by incarcerated women in Indiana, and a Beyond the Bars fellow, a research fellow at the Charles Warren Center for Studies in American History at Harvard University, a Ford Foundation Bearing Witness Fellow with Art for Justice, a Soze Foundation Right of the Return Fellow, a Code for America Fellow, a Mural Arts Rendering Justice Fellow, and an Artist for the People Practitioner Fellow at the Human Rights Lab Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago, and researcher with Women Transcending Oral History Project at the Columbia University Center for Justice. Elizabeth Nelson is an assistant professor in the Medical Humanities and Health Studies program at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, IUPUI, and an adjunct assistant professor of Africana Studies and History. Prior to coming to IUPUI, Nelson earned a PhD in French history at Indiana University Bloomington in 2015 and served as the director of public programs at the Indiana Medical History Museum from 2014 to 2017. A medical historian, Nelson's primary research interests center on modern institutions of confinement, such as mental hospitals and prisons in both the United States and France. She explores how people carve out bold and meaningful lives in the most inhospitable spaces. Nelson is currently working on a collaborative book project on deinstitutionalization and disability rights in the 1980s through 1990s, inspired by newsletters published by residents of Indiana's Central State Hospital, which closed in 1994. Since 2018, she has coordinated the Indiana Women's History Project and is co-editor with Michelle Daniel-Jones of the Indiana Women's History Project collection, Who Would Believe a Prisoner? Indiana Women's Carceral Institutions, 1848 to 1920. Michelle and Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Yes, happy to be here. I wonder if you could begin our interview by telling us a little bit about yourselves. Sure. Um, Michelle, do you want to start? Um, No, go ahead. Okay. Um, Well, I I, I don't know. That introduction was pretty thorough. But yes, um, I'm currently teaching in a medical humanities program at Indianapolis. um, And... um, working on various projects. My background is really in um, mental health history. And I was fortunate to be invited to work with Michelle and um, almost a dozen other uh, women uh, at the Indiana Women's Prison as part of this 
um, uh, this book project and also an ongoing uh, project called the Indiana Women's Prison History Project. So I joined that uh, that group in 2018, helping to kind of coordinate um, and mentor the um, uh, scholars who at that time were mostly all still incarcerated. Uh, many of them have since been uh, released from prison. Um, really shepherding the book, um, Who Would Believe a Prisoner Across the Finish Line, and also just doing general teaching um, inside the Indiana Women's Prison on history, um, historical methodology, um, and, uh, you know, various other projects. Um, Michelle, uh, I'll, I'll kick it over to you. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the bio's pretty much captured everything. Um, I think, um, in addition to all of those kind, all those things I'm interested in, I'm always looking for ways to meld my, um, research into art. And so I'm, I'm also an artist, um, that has taken a couple research projects all the way through to, um, exhibitions and public murals. We currently have an exhibition open called Makes Me Wanna Holla, Art, Death, and Imprisonment at the Logan Center on the campuses of the University of Chicago. And that project is designed to bring to public awareness the experience of COVID-19 behind bars. And that project uh, came to fruition um, with, through, the, through the organization that I work with, which is called Mourning Our Losses. And you can check us out at morningourlosses.org to learn a little bit more. Well, I have a question about a play that you put on, Michelle. But before I get to that, um, let, let, let me ask um, the questions leading, leading up to that question. Um, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the history of the Indiana Women's History Project, um, its goals, and your research and writing process. Sure, I can start with that. I think that originally it was an undergraduate class and graduate um, researchers like myself were added to groups of women who were organized based on research interests. So some people were focusing in on architecture. Some people were focusing in on how the institution uh, made money. Some focused in on who the women were specifically. And so we were organized into groups um, for these these. Presumably, there were supposed to be just two classes, you know, one semester each. Um, and then we would res result in a simple pamphlet that would tell the story. But once we got into researching um, the facility itself, looking at primary source arch archive archival um, items, as well as doing secondary research, um, the project really blew up. And women who had, you know, a serious interest in it uh, continued once the um, the class room part of it was over. And we moved right into having meta discussions, bringing our individual research to, a, to the entire uh, room so that we could have deep conversations about what we were all experiencing. And from that, it led to writing conference papers and presenting conference papers, and then also writing articles for publication. Um, yeah, so it really started off as the idea that we would do this for a couple of semesters and produce a single little pamphlet, but the interest and then the large scope of the project really um, allowed it to expand beyond those two semesters. Elizabeth, I, I uh, wanted to ask you a question about your afterward um, that, that I think really bears repeating for our listeners. Mm -hmm. um, which uh, cautions readers not to romanticize the, the word you use, the Indiana Women's History Project. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about what you mean by that and what you hope academic audiences might take away from a prison education project such as this one. Right. Well, um, yeah, I mean, so when I was writing that afterward, I was trying to figure out what I could possibly say um, that was unique to, to my experience of the project. And so this in part was a way of me trying to both express and, and critically reflect on my own motivations for being part of the project. Cause I think, you know, when I first um, was invited by um, Kelsey Kaufman, who um, was an educator at the prison um, who um, was key and, and, and beginning this, this work, um, back in 2013 or so, um, it was around 2017 that 
that she contacted me and was interested in and um, having uh, someone who is a professionally trained historian to come in and and assist with the project. And at that time, I, ha- I knew nothing about um, incarceration, and I you know I was kind of just like fascinated by the idea of of going inside a prison and what it, what would it be like. Um, and it just sounded cool and interesting, right? Um, and, um, you know, uh, uh, there's something seductive about that. Um, but, you know, once I got inside, I, you know, like from day one, I was just immediately confronted by um, just uh, the, A, the enthusiasm of all the, all the scholars in the classroom, um, but also just the reality of it. And I learned so much about um, prison conditions, the kinds of experiences that um, women had um, that led to their incarceration. Um, also, you know, as I've gotten to know people as they've, you know, moved into, um, you know, through the reentry process after being released, just how incredibly difficult that is. Um, you know, it, there, so it's, it, it just, my, my, my own personal commitments, my own orientation toward the pro- project became a lot more, I guess, serious um, as, as I, as, as it became more of a reality and not this kind of like, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, fun, uh, you know, kind of idea. Right. Um, and so it's something that I've noticed too, uh, that, you know, I think we have to balance, um, and Michelle, I think can speak to this as well when garnering interest for this, for this project and for this work, I do think there is a kind of, I don't know, orange is the new, new black, <laughs> uh, blackification of, of, um, yeah, people's mentalities around um, incarceration and particularly women in prison. And so people are interested in that. And so I think that's that's great for, you know, raising interest and in, in funding sometimes and things like that for these kinds of projects. But I think it's also really potentially, um, well, dangerous and, and limiting um, uh, and can sometimes detract, again, from from the reality of, of what incarceration is, is this... Um, as this very uh, uh, cruel, incredibly cruel, um, and life uh, uh, d- diminishing uh, system, um, it really is. And and in addition to that, uh, kind of everything that we try to do as educators um, is is firmly opposed by the way that the prison is set up. Um, you know, education should be about um, empowerment and expression and freedom, right? And the prison is, 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 is diametrically opposed to that. So another, I guess, aspect of what I was trying to work through in that, in that afterward is, you know, what is the role of an educator in a space like that? And what, what, um, what does it mean to be a, a prison ed- education program? Is that, is there something um, inherently paradoxical about that. And, and my, my position on that is that it is, right? Mm-hmm. And so I've, I was also attempting to uh, warn folks or, or counter this, um, I think, prevalent idea right now that, um, you know, the, that a success, the, the success of a project or of a book um, like, like the one that these scholars put together um, sh- that shouldn't be a defense of the prison itself to say, oh, look, look at what the prison allows uh, or, or facilitated um, was the, the a project like this, uh, this rehabilitative educational project. Um, all, I, I see all of that, all of the, the work that was accomplished is, as very much in spite of the fact uh, of the prison. So um, I'll stop there. And Michelle, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I, I think... I think you're dead. You're 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 exactly right. I think key to how we were able to accomplish that project, and I've I've written about it in other places, is that we had to develop a great deal of savvy, a great deal of understanding the system in order to learn how to work around it, because it isn't a place where, I mean, in fact, I think it was actually said to us that prisoners don't write books. You understand. So you're, you're from so from the very beginning, what we're trying to do ultimately was a radical act. And we were working um, 
within a system. So it means some of the stuff that we were trying to do was a bit subversive, but that goes, but that goes along with a system that is holistically a failure that trying to work together, to write a book or to be creative or to um, do some research had to, we had to operate and be savvy and work around and, and sometimes be subversive in order to accomplish a goal. I mean, that's diametrically opposed. I mean, education, learning, creative, working together shouldn't be a fearful negative in the in a it, period, but it certainly is in a carceral sense. So um, Elizabeth is absolutely right. We don't want to romanticize the the idea of what we were able to accomplish. I mean, some of the ladies on our project, you know, they they had challenges, they had relapses, they had, you know, so this is not a fairy tale type of situation. I mean, we really struggled to get across, to get the book across the finish line. Thank you. And thank you both. I, I Although um, Elizabeth's, this was in, is, is the, it's in the afterword for the book, I felt like it was very important for us to start by framing the book this way. So thank you all for doing that. Um, could you say a little bit about how the research and who would believe a prisoner relates to the history of medicine or the medical humanities, since this is the New Books in Medicine podcast? Well, yes. Okay. Um, so that's, that's that was one of the things that really excited me about um, being part of this project is um, I had an alignment, you know, kind of understanding the state archives, especially uh, due to work that I had done on mental institutions and those archives are at the same building uh, for the prison, uh, for the prisons. They're set up very similarly. And there was a lot, there was a lot of similarity. Um, so I, I, I was able to kind of understand what I was seeing in the archives, which helped, I think, facilitate this work. Um, but also um, uh, the scholars were really uncovering um, important aspects of the history of medicine, stories that really need to be told, um, that were really um, exciting and, and, and um, disgusting, frankly, um, at the same time. Um, so Anastasia Schmid, who was one of the founding uh, members of the project, um, pretty early on uh, was focused, uh, she was interested in um, issues of uh, medicine, mental health, and so forth, um, as they were um, uh, playing out um, and, and and institutionalized at the prison early and you know begin in its first decades, uh, so from the 1870s onward, and she um, found really um, shocking um, evidence of experimental surgeries um, and other uh, uh, medical abuses that were perpetrated by the prison's doctor Theophilus Parvin, who was you know later a president of the American Medical Association, a very celebrated um, obstetrician, gynecologist in his day. Um, and so in many ways kind of echoed, for example, um, some of the history of J. Marion Sims and his exploitation of enslaved women's bodies to produce medical knowledge. You saw something similar happening there, um, which I think is a hugely important uh, contribution to history of medicine. Um, and, and also, you know, uh, relates to what we do in medical humanities more broadly. Um, so to look at historical examples of these um, ethical abuses, for example, you know, in the training of medical students, um, which we do at IU School of Medicine and for pre-health um, students um, at IUPY, um, to really demonstrate, um, you know, yes, you know, being a healthcare professional is a uh, you're in a, a position of a great power, and there are many places where, um, you know, things you know things can go terribly wrong, or you can uh, that that power that you have, um, that access that you have to people's bodies can be terribly um, uh, misused or abused. Um, we also there's uh, Molly Whitted's work as well. Um, Indiana had already been recognized as uh, one of the uh, states that really was a pioneer of the eugenics movement. We had uh, the first um, state or first uh, uh, sterilization law um, uh, uh, in, in the world um, from 1907. And uh, but Molly was able to demonstrate that 
even before that, uh, medical authority was being used and medicalized language of feeble mindedness and so forth was being used to justify the incarceration of women that were deemed uh, problematic. Um, and to prevent is, uh, their reproduction was the, was the express goal. Um, and so that was going on in Indiana and in other states um, before sterilization. So that's a, uh, an important part of eugenics history as well. Yeah. And I think I want to add there is that, you know, we arrived at some of the findings based on this idea of uh, of the methodology piece that we used our our lens as incarcerated people as a way in which to um, as a way in which to approach the archive. So Anastasia questioned the honorability and the no the, the notoriety of a Dr. Parvin coming to a prison in Indiana um, to serve and make less than the superintendent, right? So someone of his stature, she questioned that based on her own experiences of violations that she experienced in the, in the county jail that she was in. And so privileging our lens, our, our experiences was one of the key ways in which, you know, Molly, myself, Anastasia began to kind of sort of like push against what the dominant narrative was about these people. Thank you, Michelle. And I, and you wrote the book uh, or the, the chapter on the book's methodology. And I would like to invite you to, to talk a little bit more about that. Um, the chapter coins the term the, the embodied observer to articulate how the project's authors situate themselves in relation to knowledge production. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what, what is the embodied observer and how does the method that you describe in this chapter differ from methods used, say, in ethnographic research or participatory action research? Right. So the geographic location plays a major factor in the way in which someone approaches any material, right? So where you're located and the experiences that you're going through help shape whether you're a woman, whether you're a man, whether you're white, you're black, whether you're old or young, your experiences, your lived, your current identities impact your approach to an archive. And what has traditionally happened is that when people were studying and materials were being produced and research was being produced about people in prison, very often those people were not directly impacted themselves. They were uh, academicians and other folks, sociologists and criminologists coming from the outside to, to research a population, then leave that population and go write their books and write their articles. So there wasn't anything in the traditional methodology that's available to kind of explain what it meant to do research in a captive or incarcerated positionality, right? And so mm -hmm. we had, I felt like that was such a crucial point that I needed to come up with something. And I played around with, and I shared with the other ladies and I shared with Dr. Nelson, you know, all kinds of ways to try to get to the language to kind of ex explain how our physical location and the conditions of confinement that we were under helped shape the questions we were asking of the archive. And so the methodology privileges that lens as opposed to looking at it as an automatic negative. Um, obviously, we don't, obviously, people who are not incarcerated doesn't mean that they can't do high quality research of incarceration. It doesn't mean that we should throw all of that research out. It doesn't mean that. It means that our research has a nuance so significant that standard definitions of ethnography and current practice of research that is uh, available to now didn't capture it, didn't mm -hmm. capture the total experience. And so um, our uh, our methodology comes from that. Now, what it is not like is CPAR or, or PAR, which is participatory action research. And, and not saying that it couldn't, the current ways in which uh, participatory action research is done doesn't really fit the way in which we positioned ourselves to an archive. For example, you know, traditional participatory action research is often about the population that the research is being conducted about. You are often a person 
Oh, you're often a person yourself who is out going to do the research and capture it. They create interlocutors who are coming from that population being researched. Well, we're doing our archival project. And while we are intimately connected to incarceration because we are incarcerated, we are not in that same environment that the ladies that we um, wrote about in the book, right? That specifically. So it's our positionality that helps shape this this methodology that we created. Um, and there's new there's cool nuances about it, right? I found that in talking to myself and other ladies in the book and, and uh, other ladies on the project, and Anastasia especially, that we felt that it was important for our, our book to be experienced beyond the traditional academy. So people write articles and they post them in journals and these journals get published and they go sit on a shelf somewhere. Um, or people write a book and maybe it'll go to the library and maybe some few people will engage with it. Our methodology prioritizes and makes hugely important that the research must come out in some other form for engagement. So that art piece, uh, that art piece, uh, um, that art piece is critical to understanding uh, our methodology. And I'm sorry, I'm getting some text messages in, so you might want to stop this piece. Uh, um, someone is looking for me. Um, <laughs> lastly, the last statement I want to say is that art is critical to our methodology, our positionality as incarcerated women and our lived experiences in that environment shape that particular methodological methodological approach. Yeah. And I would add to that too, that, you know, from my point of view as um, a, like a, a, one of the people on the outside who's facilitating the research and the kind of movement of materials from the, from the, you know, official archive into the prison. And so we essentially had to, you know, reproduce the archive um, and it, 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 this also gets to not romanticizing this whole process, you know, from my point of view, um, it was, there's just a lot of tedium that was involved because we had to go in and scan and print just hundreds and hundreds of pages of materials and try to keep track of everything, um, which was, um, it was a extra step, a big uh, extra mm-hmm. step in, the, in the, the research process that, um, and we have other groups around the country that are um, uh, interested in this work, um, that have, that have, uh, been inspired by the work that we do and that we've been consulting with, um, the, um, community, um, education project in Florida. Um, uh, and so there's work going on in Louisiana New York, other uh, Washington state now, and, um, and trying to create a set of best practices for researchers who are, um, needing access to to these materials has been um, an interesting challenge. Um, it's exciting, though, to see how much um, interest there is among incarcerated scholars and and um, educators who are part of higher education in prison and other other groups um, to make these resources available so there can be more um, more research done in different locations because uh, you know our work was very uh, local to Indiana and that was a, a choice that we made. We felt we could do a deeper dive that way. Um, and now we see um, uh, other projects cropping up around the country, which is very exciting. That's mm-hmm. wonderful. And so <clears throat> it's a method that can be replicated is being replicated elsewhere. Yes. Um, very cool to hear. Um, one of the things we try to do on the New Books Network is to give a pretty thorough overview of each book for listeners. Um, so that um, might inspire them to go and pick the book up and read it for themselves, or it might make them come away from the interview just feeling as though they had <laughs> read the whole book. Um, I wonder, uh, this this book is organized into three parts, and I wondered if you could explain um, how it's organized and give us a little overview of each of these parts. Sure. Well, it was it was a challenge to try to figure out how to organize it because it is essentially it's an edited collection, and there are ten authors. Um, some authors wrote multiple chapters, and 
Um, there's a couple co-author chapters and, and, and uh, all of that. And everyone had their own kind of research specialties that they were, um, they, they were writing about. And so we, you know, we're struggling with, do we write, you know, do we put the chapters in a chronological order? Do we divide the book up by what institution is, is being looked at? Um, or do we um, divide it thematically? And I think what we ended up with is a kind of blend of the three. Um, mm-hmm. The first section, um, Michelle, maybe you, you want to talk about that because that I think represents yeah. a lot of your work. Um, yeah, go ahead and talk about that, that first sec- uh, section. Yeah, I think I think you're right. We struggled on how um, different ways. We had multiple, multiple <laughs> outlines going for a while. Um, but I think ultimately we decided to center the book around the voices of the women themselves. And so each chapter leads with a story of the women. We're really doing what um, Michel Foucault talked about in, in a lot of his research about, you know, um, excavating subjugated knowledges, right? So the, denom- the dominant narrative that we often hear about um, incarcerated people um, is one that almost always starts with deviance and that something is holistically wrong with this particular population. Um, and we didn't do that. We privileged these women's and their experiences and we ex- excavated them. Um, and so each chapter is centered around a particular woman or group of women, right? We're really bringing women's voices to the fore. And so the first section, part one, is telling the story of the first prison in the state of Indiana and at the point when it became co-ed to include women. And this was um, Jeffersonville Prison, um, Indiana State Prison in Jeffersonville, Indiana. And we tell the story about how it was very common after the Civil War for colonels, former colonels and other military folks to be given um, uh appointed positions as warden um, in a lot of these facilities, in in this first facility. And we tell that story about um, how violence was very very key to how these facilities were ran. And then at the point when women were were included and housed in the, the same grounds, we tell the story about how violence was used to attempt to control this population, as well as you know, sex and gendered violence, uh, uh, sexual uh, violations, including rape, um, and as well as infection of uh, sexually transmitted diseases. We talk about um, the fact that children were born um, and and how the the awardens kind of ran like essentially prostitution rings, um, allowing the uh, guards to pay them $10 a month for open access to the women on the grounds. And then we introduce our are would-be heroines, um, you know, Sarah Smith and Rhoda Coffin at this point, because they have their long history um, of advocating for change um, in uh, coming out of their Richmond Quaker community, Richmond, Indiana. And they are the people who advocate for a prison separate for women. Um, and so chapter one tells, you know, tells that story. Um, and then we move into telling a story about like who Rhoda and Sarah was and their, who are their, their partners and how did they come to the work? Um, and that follows with their or their creating of organizations um, and stepping out of their domestic sphere as women, homemakers in, and their move into the public sphere sphere as a, uh, Pro, uh, public professionals, you know, being named to uh, high positions and being leaders and superintendents over the first prisons for women in the United States. We tell that story. Um, and we tell the story for how they were attempting to solve a problem of a surplus population of women who presumably were using um, performing sex work as a, as a means to um, survive. I think a lot of people don't understand the particular uh, challenges and the particular um, constraints women were under after the Civil War. I mean, several women, a lot of women lost their their protectors. They lost their husbands. They lost their their fathers. They lost their brothers. And issues of uh, women owning property meant that a lot of women lost their safety, lost their homes, lost lost their uh, family, lost 
you know, uh, key parts of themselves. And some of those women turn to theft to survive, turn to fraud, turn to sex work to survive, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because of the social constructs, the social things going on in the community that made it made livability challenged. And so we tell that story. We also move into the first prison in the first section uh, and the opening of that instant, that first public prison for women in the United States, which is the full name of it is the Indiana Reformatory for Women and Girls. And we tell the story about Rhoda Coffin and Sarah Smith rising to a position in order to open up the state institution and moving truly from the home into the public sphere and the challenges that they met immediately trying to conform and control women and to shape them in images um, that were that that they dictated that these women would have, such as basic and Christian indoctrination and basic training into domesticity and and with the goal of being a domestic worker or marriage, right? And so this whole idea of creating a space to train up what they considered fallen, ruined, deviant women into images of their own creation. We kind of get into that story, which is counter the dominant narrative, which kind of heralds these women as holistically benevolent in all ways. We we talk about the the, the constraints they're on, under to try to make this first Prison, public prison for women, a model for other inst- uh, other states around the country, and also for other women, and that created a particular pressure to be, be the best, be perfect, be without spot or blemish, right? And so they also, just like in the men's facility, they also turn to violence as a way in which to try to control behavior. And it just, we go back to this general notion that violence is constitutive of the prison. A prison ran by men, a prison ran by women. They're really, the the fundamental understanding is that prisons cannot be ran without violence as a key marker in the way in which it runs. And so these early chapters are kind of setting that up and telling that story, uh, ultimately culminating in key investigations that brought the violence to the to the to the forefront of uh, legislative investigation and um, res- and resolution. So, yeah. Yeah, I would add to that. Um, so, you know, in this early section, we have chapters by Kim Baldwin, in addition to Mel- Michelle uh, Daniel Jones's uh, work um, and, and uh, also contributions by Molly Whitted and Michelle Williams. Another theme um, that is explored in this first section um, is the economic exploitation of uh, of the incarcerated women and girls. So the ways that their labor uh, was dependent upon um, in various ways. So you know, work that was done inside the, the reform- reformatory itself, and also being leased out to. Um, wealthy uh, uh, people in the community who would um, uh, uh, yes. use their labor as domestic uh, service. Um, and so looking at some of the economics of that and this kind of theme of exploitation um, is brought brought out there as well. And then going yeah. into the second part, um, that theme is, continues um, through uh, a look at, um, as we mentioned before, Anastasia Schmid's work on Dr. Parvin and the extraction of medical knowledge from the bodies of the uh, the women um, incarcerated there. Um, and uh, Molly Whitted's chapter is in that section as well, which looks at um, the kind of eugenic um, uh, aspect of... Um, and, and here's also where you begin to see... Um, uh, so beyond the reformatory itself, um, a kind of proliferation of different kinds of institutions that be, become implicated in these same kinds of patterns of exploitation, um, but it, you know, all in a somewhat different key. So Molly Whitted's work uh, looks at the feeble-minded um, uh, school, um, which was in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and the um, the incarceration of quote unquote feeble-minded women there. Um, you you know using a, a an uh, or a eugenic um, kind of mandate, um, and we also um, Nicole Hayes, for example, examines the girls' school, which splits off from that original uh, reformatory, which housed women and girls together, 
Um, ultimately, they create a juvenile facility. And Nicole um, specifically looks at the circulation of sex workers between that school and um, a, a, a brothel that was located um, just across the state line in, in Illinois, in Dan, Danville, Illinois, um, and kind of um, questioning that rehabilitation narrative um, and um, looking at the, um, as Michelle mentioned, the kind of uh, social and economic structures that um, that perpetuated um, certain forms of ec econo economic exploitation, as well as the constraints on women's, you know, range of, of choices and, and the exercise of their agency within that system. Um, and then also uh, this section includes um, a, an excerpt from the play called The Duchess of Stringtown, which Michelle, um, you might say more about as you and uh, Anastasia authored that play. Yeah, sure. Um, and thank you for um, capturing the other the other chapters. I, I felt like my brain was full of so much information that I could. <laughs> I was like, there's, I a, lot, there's a lot it's going so on. Much, it's so yes. much. So thank you for you know bringing to the fore um, Kim's uh, contributions, which is like very. I mean, she just from the very meta the early discussions that we had. You know, she was so interested in understanding where the money was going, where the money was coming from. She felt like that that was a key part of understanding how um, prisons operate is this flow of money where you're allowed to have incarcerated people laboring without um, much oversight from any outside entities, right? And so this is a current issue even today in corrections. And so, yeah, we don't wanna lose sight of um, Kim's um, um, so important contribution and so Anastasia and I wrote the, the play after uh, we had this amazing uh, course with a filmmaker by the name of Oogie Pak. And he helped us talk about, learn about the story and how to create the story. We had all these amazing transcripts. And it was Anastasia who said that all, this, all, this, all these stories that we were learning about these women was likened unto a soap opera. And it's from that moment that we were like, well, why don't we write it? Because it's, it, you're right, it's like a soap opera. And so the research um, that we did, we actually spent some time with Ugi um, learning like how to, you know, how to create a story and how to, to create a story arc. And, and then we, um, I mean, actually, I think the first few versions of the play would like run three hours. I mean, it's just like that, that much. It would be like watching Avatar for real. <laughs> But we, we got it down to a manageable size um, and we would use our time at work because we worked in the same department. I ran the mosquito net department and Anastasia and I worked in there. And, you know, when we weren't, if we didn't have any tasks to do, you know, we would work on dialogue and shaping the story. But the story tell, the, the, the play tells the story of a major um, uh, 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 Duchess, we call her the Duchess of Stringtown. She was a woman who ran a brothel that was likened unto a hotel because apparently it covered a block. So she was a major figure in an area that was triggered for um, integration into the uh, greater Indianapolis. And so we tell the story about this 40 some year old woman who suddenly dies at this key moment when this area is being annexed and being uh, added to the greater city of Indianapolis. And then the challenges she was up against, against even Sarah Smith herself, that we, we posit that um, she was killed, she died or she was murdered intentionally by all of these different interests in the city that wanted her property, who that was had had a desire to change the culture of the area of Stringtown, which was considered an area of vice. And so we get to talk about gendered and sexual violence. We get to talk about social identities of the sex worker. We get to talk about like who you're calling a sex worker isn't just this this idea of this depraved individual. This is a woman who has, um, we tell, tell all different stories, a young black woman who is uh, raped by um, the, 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 uh, her, her employer. We tell the story of um, a very 
well-off white woman who is ruined by a, 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 a man who says he would marry her, but wouldn't, right? And so people who end up in sex work come from everywhere. And we wanted to trouble any notions, any ideas that a, a sex worker is a holistically depraved uh, construct. And, and, and there's a bit of comedy in it. And we get to talk about, um, Anastasia wrote an amazing, um, amazing chapter on a, a, a scene about Dr. Parvin and the men of science and how there's an interest in studying what they consider uh, depraved sexual con uh, uh, acts, right? Um, they perform clitorectomies and ovarectomies because they're interested in studying the women's uh, female anatomy um, to the extent that they're willing to uh, experiment on women who come to them for uh, uh, who come that come to them for, out of need out of several different things. Right? We have women who came to Dr. Parfin because they were deemed to be hysterical, um, or women who were uh, considered to be nymphomatics, right? And how he used cocaine in order to try to calm and control the sexuality of a woman who would want to have sex and desire sex. Because in this time, sex is deemed as something only for procreation and is in the purview of the male to be uh, um, sexually um, interested or interested in sex and having sex. And so it's Dr. Parvin and other men like him who come up with experiments such as putting cocaine on a woman's clitoris to try to control her sexuality or her sexual desire. We get to have um, in this play, you know, um, we get to explore some of these ideas of the early male medical doctor against the wide knowledge of the midwives and the community healers um, look at the women's of women's anatomy, right? So we get to look at how these men viewed women's bodies and the ways in which they were willing to experiment in order to try to control women's bodies ultimately, right? This knowledge gathering for the purposes of social control. We get to explore that. So it's it's a and then of course we're, we're kind of we Anastasia and I are very dramatic people if you know us personally and so the the you know what's what's a grand play about a grand duchess uh, without a grand finale death and and where she, where she is animated in her own funeral so um, yeah it's a full on action packed play but we chose key. Um, sections of the play so that you all could get a taste of the story. Yeah. And I, well, I thought the play, I mean, well, first of all, it's a, the part of the origin uh, of the play idea was that Sarah Smith, one of the founders of the prison did show up, you know, we, we have documentation of this showed up at the Duchess's funeral and, and sermonized um, and condemned, you know, um, the the sex workers that were present uh, to hell, and so there was that there was the real kind of historical drama there that you know documented it. Let's say drama, um, but I think what the play was able to do is to draw connections among a lot of these different institutions. That um, I mean, I, I think other chapters in this book do this as well, but this was a this there's a, an opportunity I think with the narrative format to. Um, make a lot of those um uh, just follow a lot of those inferences like these this all seems to be part of a larger story how do all of these um stories that we see running in parallel how do they all fit together um and then you know so and then the third part of the book um looks at another institution which is known as the house of the good shepherd um there are four chapters there um, by Christina Kovats, Natalie Medley, Rayanne Kelly, and Lara Campbell. Um, and that section of the book, um, again, it's it's a, 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 just an attempt to connect the dots. Um, Michelle, I think it was you that early on was noticing um, at the reformatory that there were no women that had been convicted of of crimes related to sex work, right? And uh, but finding other sources talking about how ramp rampant um, uh, prostitution was in the city and all of this. 
And so where where were the sex workers being sent after arrest? And that led to um, a discovery of the House of the Good Shepherd, which was a private Catholic um, run institution that um, was run by a religious order of nuns um, that had originated in France and came to the United States um, and built a network of these institutions um, all over the country. Um, and the, the one in Indiana was among the first that they founded. Um, and, uh, you know, so this is running alongside the prison and the feeble-minded home and the girls' school um, uh, and, the, you know, these other institutions. Um, and it, so it was a, another um, pathway and another um, flavor of incarceration that many experienced. Um, and, and, but again, this theme of the control of sexuality, um, economic exploitation, physical abuse and violence, all of that is, is, you know, reiterated in this, uh, in this, in these, these set of chapters. Um, and that section of the book, I think also is a huge contribution in that it places, it, it shows the relationships between these private um, institutions and uh, making a case that they need to be part of the larger historiography on prisons writ large. But it also places the book in an international conversation. Um, you know, there had been, um, for example, in Ireland, especially a lot of um, reckoning with um, the past of these mother and baby homes and um, uh, what were called Magdalene laundries. Uh, where women who were, you know, having sex with uh, having sex or uh, suspected of having sex outside of marriage, whether consensual or non-consensual, were often um, uh, put into these punitive and carceral spaces. And this is this is a way of, of demonstrating, along with other scholars, there's other work that's going on in Canada and other and, and around the world. Um, that these, this is a really kind of a, a international story as well, um, and that this institution in Indiana is part of this um, this much larger network. Thank you. Well, <laughs> thank you for that wonderfully um, thorough um, overview, and I, I hope our listeners will will pick this book up and dive into many of these chapters for themselves. Um, <clears throat> how has the publication of this book changed or not changed? the lives of its authors? And then as a, a follow-up question to that, um, what impact do you hope the book will have? Hmm. Michelle, you want to take that one? Um, how has it changed or not changed? Um, well, first of all, having the opportunity to publish a real book with that's my husband's lunch. Um, having the opportunity to publish a real book um, of our research, I mean, it just honestly, it just is, it's an encouragement that we can do anything we set our mind to, honestly, because yep. I think that um, there were times when I, I worried if we would get, get it across the finish line for several different factors, for several different reasons. But um, this is something I know now that... I can do. And I know that other women feel the same way that there's like, there's really nothing impossible for us. And so that kind of attitude um, is really part of, um, of my consciousness around this project. It, one of the things I walk away from it is with, you know, there's a lot of lessons learned about how we can improve administering and doing a project like this in the future. But I also know that it's something that we thought would be great to do, but until we actually got an actual contract and got with the new press and that, you know, we actually signed, I mean, or, and, or actually once we sent the fourth manuscript in, I would say, I was like, you know, okay, this is really, really, really real. So now I, I feel like there's like nothing that I can do if I really want to. So I think that's how it's, um, it's added to that kind of consciousness that I already was fostering but like, and now I know, like, there's nothing I can do. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, one of our authors was in court just a couple weeks ago and um, 
was uh, working to get you know off of off of surveillance, off of probation, and uh, was granted that. Um, and part uh, the the judge held up the book and you know and and, and you know uh, you know was impressed by uh, her her scholarship and her commitment to to seeing this project through. And so I do think it makes. Um, an impact in various ways, um, I, you know, uh, getting into into school, you know, um, showing that, you know, um, you, uh, you know, on your application to be able to say that you contributed to such a project. I've, I've seen that um, really um, being a, a key factor in and and um, kind of the the trajectories that um, you know what what doors and opportunities are 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 available to many of the authors on this book. Um, I know, but I, as I do say in the afterward, you know, I, I think we do need to be cautious about, you know, overstating, um, you know, these things in that, you know, uh, I think we also need to be constantly um, cognizant of the multiple barriers that um, women are facing as they are reentering um, society um, and like all of the hurdles that are placed into people's uh, way, um, the economic hurdles, the psychological hurdles, you name it, um, are very real. Um, and several of our authors are still um, uh, on the inside um, and don't need to be, right? Um, so I, I think it, it's important to balance all of that out, you know, uh, to be very uh, proud of, uh, I, I certainly am proud of, of this accomplishment and all of the scholars who who contributed to this book. Um, and, and I, you know, as, a, as an educator, I, I'm, I'm proud of what we were able to accomplish, uh, but I think we always have to hold uh, along with that, um, a, a you know a sense of obligation toward um, the work of of abolition. Um, it's not enough just to do a really cool you know educational program or do a cool book project, but also to be committed to um, ending um, this this uh, this this system of of incarceration um, and and the ways that we. Think about um, our responses to "quote unquote" crime, and and you know what what does that um, what does what does that even mean, right? So it should open up, I think, bigger conversations, or I hope it does. Um, so to speak to your question, Claire, about what what impact mm-hmm. we hope the book will have, um, I think that it, you know by exposing the violence, as Michelle was t- uh, talking about earlier, at the very heart, uh, the very origins of of the system of incarceration. I think it also will hopefully become a tool in the abolitionist, uh, you know, intellectual arsenal and um, to be able to demonstrate, you know, this is not a system that we can reform. It's it's been corrupt from the very start. Thank you. Um, uh, Thank you very much for um, for articulating that um, at, at the end. And so there there the the book it really is um, um, relates to contemporary debates about prison abolition and it does so quite explicitly um, and uh, so so thank you for um, for making that clear to our listeners um, this brings us to the traditional NBN final question um, and that is um, what are you working on next now that this book is out in the world um, what's your next scholarly project. Well, um, so me personally, I'm working with um, uh, on, a, on a project with um, my colleagues Emily Beckman and Madupe Labodi on um, deinstitutionalization and disability. Um, so we're looking at the closure of Indiana's Central State Hospital in the 1980s and 1990s, um, focusing on the experiences of people with intellectual disabilities and their caregivers and looking at um, the creation of community and um, the the operations of the disability rights movement, even inside um, a very uh, uh, damned um, institution, um, and then uh, understanding the processes and again, inherent structural violence that uh, would ultimately, and activism that would ultimately lead to the closure of the hospital and trying to 
think about the legacy of these institutions um, in, in uh, local memory today. So that's, that's one thing. And then um, with Michelle and um, Anastasia and others, um, we are um, interested in pursuing a project that um, explores, um, there are many different names for this, uh, post-carceral trauma or post-incarceration syndrome. Um, so, um, like we were saying, you know, uh, earlier, um, you know, uh, this, uh, you know, the, the process of reentry, um, is incredibly difficult and the, um, psychological impacts of incarceration are, are, um, is, a from a public health point of view, but, uh, from, a from the point of view of, of advocacy, um, uh, is a is a topic that needs much much more attention, and so um, we have we're building a team of people right now to, uh, that will be doing um, some pretty extensive historical and contemporary research um, and and creation of educational materials um, and public facing uh, projects, creative projects um, around that topic. And yeah, so we're doing that. And I think um, obviously for me, my primary goal right now is to um, complete my dissertation. My dissertation is, um, uh, my goal is to have it mostly written by the end of the year. So um, I've been spending a lot of time focusing on that. And uh, yeah, uh, I just finished, like I said earlier in my intro, my last, my latest exhibit is op- open and getting that cross the threshold was a huge accomplishment. I'm very excited to get that done. And yeah, I'm in the process of just kind of getting back into focusing in on my dissertation and getting that writing completed. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you. We have been speaking with Michelle Daniel Jones and Elizabeth Angeline Nelson about their groundbreaking new edited collection, Uh, Who Would Believe a Prisoner, Indiana Women's Carceral Institutions, 1848 to 1920. Um, And thank you all both for coming on the show and for sharing your work with our audience. Thank you for having us. 